Welcome to Mostly Books Meets. We're the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop in Abingdon. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life, and we hope you'll join us for the journey. podcast this week, I'm speaking to award-winning children's author and wildlife enthusiast, Jill Lewis. Jill's first book, Skyhawk, was written after she completed a master's degree in writing for young people. At the end of the degree, she won a prize for the most promising writer of her year. Whoever chose her as a winner was absolutely right. Jill has since gone on to write 17 books, two of which are out this year, together with the 10th anniversary edition of Skyhawk. It's wonderful to have her on the podcast today. Jill, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Hello, and thank you for inviting me to talk about all things books. It's great to be here. Well, I'd like to start off by going back to your childhood, if you don't mind. You grew up in the outskirts of Bath, where you lived for time outdoors, it seems. What was life like for you? Yes, I grew up in just on the outskirts of the city, and I had this absolute fascination with anything wild. And we had a very steep and narrow garden that went all the way from the top of the houses all the way down to this rather scruffy patch of woodland that the council owned and it was just left to go wild so this was our sort of wild playground as it were and I remember it just was a place of infinite imaginings where we'd sort of run through the thickets of brambles and it would be our sort of Jurassic Park it would be our wild adventures and it was a really magical magical place so that was my wild place. That sounds fantastic. I used to have somewhere very like that in the village I grew up in. I wasn't lucky enough to have it at the end of my garden. It was kind of down the road. But you're right, when you're a child, having somewhere like that, it's a big adventure, isn't it? You feel like you're part of almost Famous Five or something like that, where you think there's going to be a big adventure around the corner. It's a huge adventurous place. And I think especially for children, it's nice to be somewhere where you can go as a group and be away from that sort of parental supervision where you can have your own adventures and sort of dare to take risks, climbing trees, being part of a little team. It was really a great time. It's really where I sort of founded my real love of wildlife. So even within our own garden, which is quite wild at the end, that's where I go looking for butterflies and look for wild birds' nests. And in this little area that we used to call the woods, down the scruffy patch of woodland, we used to go and follow fox trails and there used to be a little badger set down there. So we'd sort of go down and dare to go down and try to see the badgers down there as well. So it was my first encounter of the wild. And I think that's what really started off my love of wildlife. And I think that's what I've tried to put in many of my books, that you don't have to go to far-flung exotic places to see amazing wildlife. Wildlife can be there on your own doorstep. But sometimes we have to work really hard to make sure it stays on our doorstep and keep those wild habitats around us as well. Yeah, absolutely. We are seeing more and more of that. I know particularly there's been this big focus on bees recently, hasn't there? So I live in a town and I'm finding that I'm going around various parts of the town and there's lots of like wild meadows that are kind of being left to their own devices. So that's really lovely seeing that kind of thing where people are actually really thinking about the wildlife again, where I think there was a point where there was a little bit of apathy about it. So it's no bad thing. I think that's very true. I think there is this far more collective consciousness about rewilding 
but there's that flip side as well. We still are seeing lots of gardens which have got plastic grass. <laughs> so there still needs to be an awful lot of effort to sort of engage people with what they could have in their own gardens and their own environment as well. Yeah, so true, so true. So going back to your childhood, were you an avid reader as a child? I wasn't an avid reader as a child. I loved stories. I loved hearing stories. I loved people telling me stories. But as a child, I found it quite difficult to learn to read. I really struggled. And I remember that a lot of my contemporaries were sort of racing ahead with reading and they were engaging with books that seemed terribly exciting. When I was younger, a lot of my friends were going on to books, the Narnia series. And I was still stuck with sort of very young books. And I remember feeling so frustrated because they didn't have the content that I wanted. And as a child, when you can't access those stories and you're presented with what you feel are stories sort of beneath your understanding age, then I remember turning off books, which really was a huge mistake. And I think I see so many young people now who do engage with graphic novels. There's a huge wealth of graphic novels which help as a way into reading. But also we've got some wonderful publishers like Barrington Stoke Books, which are producing shorter books, more accessible books, yet with that great content that, that make it accessible. It's funny you brought up the thing about Barrington Stoke, because obviously you published a Barrington Stoke book earlier this year. And I was going to say exactly that when you were talking, because I think a lot of people aren't really that aware of them as a publisher. Or some people are, but think that they're just really for dyslexic children. But I think it's so good to be able to have that content because it's also just for children like it sounds like you were that were interested in stories, but weren't that bothered about sitting down and reading a book. So kind of the reluctant reader. And I think that's what makes them such great books. Yes, Barrington Stoke produced some wonderful books and their books have won some really top prizes in children's literature as well. So they really are producing these really accessible, wonderful stories. And my most recent book with them is Swan Song, which is a story about a boy named Dylan who's really struggling at school. He's finding school really difficult and all that anxiety explodes as anger and he's expelled from school but it's actually his connection with the wild swans on a Welsh estuary that really start him to remember what it's like to be himself again. And it's his sort of journey to recovery, really. So that was a lovely book to be able to write for Barrington Stoke and has, it was partly back to my own childhood. My father kept a boat on the Welsh estuary where he grew up in the Gower. And I remember having lots of magical trips out just as a child and also as a teenager out onto this Welsh landscape onto this estuary and I just remember that wonderful feeling of just being able to sort of have headspace to think and to breathe away from all the sort of trappings of school and living in a city it was just a magical place. God, it sounds fantastic so you didn't necessarily enjoy reading you liked stories but did you enjoy writing as a child when did you start writing? Well I started writing quite early and I think it's primary school we didn't have the huge red lines across the work. We were encouraged with creativity. And you could also draw pictures with your stories at primary school, which is a huge bonus. And even now as a writer, before I start doing any writing, I draw pictures, I draw my characters, I draw the landscapes. I quite often draw storyboards to imagine how a scene will progress. So drawing is essential to my writing process. Um, so I love writing stories. And I think it was really when I went into secondary school that suddenly we weren't allowed to draw any more pictures and all the spelling had to be correct, the grammar had to be correct, and that put me off the creativity of writing. Um, but I did. I loved writing stories and creating comics as well. 
So given your career, you must have got into books and reading at some point. What was the first book you remember reading that you actually really enjoyed? That's a good question. The first book that I really enjoyed, in fact, I think it was the book that made me become a reader, was The Snow Goose by Paul Gallico. Now, I remember that moment of opening this book. I went with my mother to this elderly great aunt's house. And I remember feeling quite bored and disinterested and I sat down on her sofa and there in her bookcase was this rather sort of ragged cloth bound book and I remember pulling it out and wondering what it was about. There was a little imprint of a snow goose on the cover and I opened the first page and there was this absolutely beautiful portrait of this girl holding this injured goose and the illustrator is Sir Peter Scott. And I just remember looking at this portrait and thinking, I wanted to be Fritta. I wanted to be her. I wanted to be holding the goose because I was so fascinated with animals. You know, I wanted to be a vet. I wanted to be the one to rescue this goose. And so I turned the pages and started to read. And while the the vocabulary was quite advanced and complicated, I just was so desperate to know what happened in the story that I worked my way through all the text. And there were these absolutely stunning images of geese and these wild marshes to follow as well. And it's such a beautiful story. It could be read very easily today. It hasn't become old-fashioned in any way. And that was the book which made me become a reader, made me want to read more. So from that point on, did the dam kind of open? You were then interested in books. It was just literally you can see that point in your history as to when that changed. Definitely. Reading that book made me realise, gave me permission to read and gave me permission also to be able to sort of read slowly. I think there's often this feel even now that you have to race through a book or you have to sort of start a book and finish it. But this is really reading to enjoy reading and to get something out of reading for yourself, not feeling like you have to please others to read and finish a book. This is actually part of that journey of you know, understanding the world around you and loving books. So I think I really feel that with many children that actually it is finding the right book, the book that speaks to them, that will make them a reader. As booksellers, that's what we say all the time. We do have a theory that pretty much any child could enjoy books, but we just need to find the right book for them. So we always take on that challenge with gusto. Enjoy it. (laughs) I think it's such a magical moment when you do see a child finding that book, isn't it? It's incredible. You can see the eyes light up and it's sort of, oh, it's almost sort of, this book's written for me. I love this book. And as an author, it's wonderful when a child engages with your own books and you feel they've had that moment of of meeting books and really understanding why books are so magical. Yeah, absolutely. And we talk to parents a lot about there not being any right or wrong books as well because I think some parents will come in and they'll be like well we don't want them to read things that have got too many illustrations and we want them to be reading you know a more grown-up book and our argument to that will be well okay surely it's better for them to be reading the style of book that they enjoy there's no right or wrong so yeah we just we always have such a range of different options to suggest to kids and it's so satisfying like you say when they actually go out to the shop clutching onto a book that they thought they didn't want it's all good So after school, your fascination with animals continued and you worked in a number of animal related jobs until you became a vet, which you did for a while. But then you started to have children. I understand when your third child was born, you decided that actually to take a step back from that because I imagine it was quite a demanding job. And as I understand it, it was when your children were young. That's when you rediscovered children's books. Is that correct? That's right. So I was a vet for many years, a job I loved. I really loved it. But it's quite a difficult job when you have to do on calls 
on the evenings and weekends. My husband's also a vet, so he was doing on calls and evenings, and it was trying to find that family time, which then became quite elusive. So I took a step back from my veterinary work and started wanting to write at the same time, and that took quite a long time from beginning to write to find a publisher. But it was at that time when I would go along to the library with my children, take out a huge pile of picture books and sit with them reading through books. And I suddenly re-engaged with this world of children's books and how powerful they were, not only for the content of the books, but also how much they're so important to have those magical moments with a child when you sit down and you go on these magical journeys together through a book. Both not only myself, but I remember my own mum and dad would bring books and sit down with them. And that was something that carried on for them for many years, even in my children into their teens and early 20s. They still enjoyed that magical sharing stories and sharing books. And I believe that really started early on, just going to the library, picking out all these wonderful books. So what was it that made you decide to do the master's degree? Was it the influence of reading the children's books or was it something else that made you decide to go and do that? I've always loved creating stories ever since primary school. And I think I turned off that creativity in secondary school because my spelling wasn't very good. Uh, My grammar needed improving. And I went on to study the sciences and went on to become a vet. And I think it was really re-engaging with children's books and wanting to rediscover that creativity, start to write stories, tell stories to my own children. And that was the turning process and how much you, know, you engage with somebody else by sharing a story. But that in itself took quite a long time. I sent off, I wrote a few ideas. I had one idea published. And I thought, oh, this writing lot will be easy, um, but, it, but it wasn't. It took another perhaps four or five years of sending out submissions and getting lots of rejections back. And then I thought I'd give it one last try, and I went on an MA writing course. And there I really learned how to craft my writing, how to edit the work, that writing is constantly rewriting, and sometimes you have to change whole characters, change plot lines. Once you've got this big story which feels like in a way like a lump of clay once you've written the first draft you have to start to sculpt it and pull bits out and put things back on and that was really the sort of biggest learning curve of going on to the MA and it was on the MA that I wrote Skyhawk which went on to find an agent and find a publisher. It's lovely that it actually happened as part of the course because that means that you really got what you needed to get out of doing that. So fast forward to today, you now live in Somerset with your family and you work full time as a writer. What's life like for you these days? So life is very varied these days. I currently write full time in Somerset. Every day is really different. I love the days when I can just sink into a story and write from sort of nine o'clock in the morning till about lunchtime midday. And when you've lost in the story and you suddenly find it's lunchtime, that's magic writing time. A lot of time is actually doing some admin with the writing. And a lot of my time is sometimes spent doing research for the next book. I spend hours on research, talking to people, um, finding out information. So writing life is very varied. And of course, it's very different in the pandemic. Before the pandemic, I would visit many schools and festivals. But that pandemic has seen a lot more school visits online, which has been a challenge, but has been fun, actually. It's been wonderful to sort of visit classrooms and feel sort of part of that reading community. So I think things are changing in some ways. And I hope that some of the online events will perhaps become hybrid events that people can enjoy them remotely from home and also in person as well. It'd be great if we can bring the best of both worlds. 
yeah, I definitely think that's the way forward. I think it would be a very strange situation if, given everything we've all been through over the last 16 months, we then ended up going back to exactly everything how it was before. I just don't think that would be feasible. What was the last book that you read? So the last book that I read is a wonderful book by Linda Newbury called This Book is Cruelty Free. And it's a book of our time, really. It addresses many issues, ethical, environmental issues, how we treat animals as individuals and how we treat the environment as well and our impact on the future of the planet. So Linda Newbury explores whether or not it's from fast fashion to makeup products we use on our face, how that impacts some animals, and also the use of going meat-free, like having a plant-based diet, how that's got a, a really good positive impact on the future. But what I love most about Linda's book is she talks about how there are many sort of grey areas which we're not quite sure. Should we be fully vegetarian? Should we be fully vegan? Should we stop using certain products? And she sort of gives permission it's all right not to be perfect. And how if the majority of people try to do their best imperfectly, it's much better than a minority being absolutely perfect about doing things. So it really helps in decision making, I think, for everyone, how to live a better way for animals and also for the planet as well. I definitely have to add that to my big pile of books. So do you always have just one book on the go or are you someone that can read a, a few concurrently? When I'm reading, I tend to have one book on the go or one fiction book on the go. I might be dipping in and out of a few non-fiction books. But I find that when I'm writing, I find it really hard to read fiction when I'm writing my own fiction because I find that perhaps the character in the book that I'm writing about interferes with the character I'm trying to write in my own story. So I tend to avoid fiction when I'm writing and then catch up on it later. (laughs) Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's a bit like I always find that if I'm trying to concentrate, I can't listen to music with words in it, but I'm fine having classical music. Same thing. It's, you know, the the words start to kind of integrate with my thought process. So I'm always interested in hearing about the book that changed your life, because I have a theory that everybody that's a reader has a book that has had an impact on them. And that could be professionally, it could be personally. Do you have a book like that? And if so, what is it? I do have a book that changed my life. I think I've got lots of books, actually, that changed my life from the very first book that I loved, which was a nonfiction book called The Living World of Animals. And that was my sort of childhood Bible into the world of wild animals and wild places but I think more recently there's a book which changed my life and I think when you're thinking about a life-changing book either it's changed you or it's changed your world view and the book which changed me is a book called Inglorious by Mark Avery. Now when I was writing I was going to write a book about this wonderful bird called the hen harrier and I knew that the hen harrier had been persecuted almost to extinction in this country. I was writing this book following on from writing about the osprey, which the osprey was once heavily persecuted in this country, but has made an amazing comeback through individuals and organisations. But the hen harrier is still highly persecuted. And so I read Mark Avery's book, which talks about not only the driven grouse shooting industry, but it talks about how the use of our mountains and our uplands in northern England and in Scotland. And it really made me see the British landscape in a very different way. I think we forget that Britain used to once be heavily forested 
And over thousands of years, people cut down trees for timber, for fuel, for grazing. And we now see our mountains as bare and we rejoice in that. We think this is normal. Um, and more recently, in the last 150 years, there's been lots of driven grouse shooting and the hills have been managed for heather, for a sort of monoculture of heather for the grouse to eat. And we tend to look at these hills which are quite devoid of trees and got lots of heather and go, oh, aren't these beautiful? Because that's all we've been taught to think this is how the hills should be. We forget that there should be a greater richness in habitats and in biodiversity. And so Mark Avery's book really highlighted how these landscapes are used for driven grouse shooting and that driven grouse shooting is dependent on wildlife crime, on the killing of birds like the hen harrier, the golden eagle, because hen harriers and golden eagles happen to like to eat red grouse as well, so that's why they're killed. But that's also dependent on keeping these landscapes in very degraded states, so then other wild habitats aren't allowed to be brought back. And that suddenly changed my worldview, thinking, well, why haven't I seen this before? Why is this being allowed to happen? And it's being allowed to happen because of political inactivity and because of the historical land ownership in Britain. And his book made me want to write Sky Dancer, which is a book about the hen harrier and about driven grouse shooting. And it's about the change that we need to see on much of our uplands and how the hen harrier is the symbol of change. And what's been incredible to see even more recently is the amount of rewilding projects which have happened across Scotland changing the landscapes, removing these monocultures of heather and bringing back habitats of woodland, of re-wetting these bogs, which are really important for carbon capture, and of bringing the biodiversity back. And the book has made me far more perhaps radical in my writing about writing things that need to change, because I think that's why books are really important, because they help us all to sort of see those changes. Totally agree. And also, I think the thing is with something like that, the kind of thing you're talking about, where you talk about people doing rewilding work and, and, and actually making active steps in that direction. I think as an individual doing something like that, they might feel like it's quite a small thing. You know, they're just doing their little thing and really what impact is it having? But by having books like that, the book that Mark has written about, it kind of reinforces the fact that actually if this person's doing this and this person's doing this then you know as time goes on the cumulative effect will have a much more positive impact and I think it's just it's another way of highlighting people that they're not alone really in their aim and their objectives so sounds fantastic so the fourth and last book I'd like to talk to you about is a book that you have written Skyhawk is celebrating its 10th anniversary this year that must feel incredible to know that that anniversary is coming up and and OUP is celebrating by publishing a gorgeous 10th anniversary edition which is out in early September tell us about the book oh well I'm really excited that Skyhawk is having its 10th anniversary and especially so I remember back to the time when I sent out Skyhawk as my sort of debut manuscript and it had a few rejections at first and one of the first rejections that it had was from an agent who said oh I love this story but I can't see a place for it because children just aren't interested in nature anymore and I remember feeling sort of devastated not only for the rejection but also just thinking well if children really aren't interested in nature anymore then what's the hope for the sort of future of the planet and that sort of idea was also borne out by the research that showed that 
many words are slipping out of children's language like otter and bluebell and all these nature words which we saw this amazing response from the lost words by Jackie Morris and Robert McFarlane which have really brought these words back into our consciousness into our language and I feel there is a great forward change about how people wanting to write books about more nature issues about more wild issues about protecting the planet but for me at the time when Skyhawk was published it was very exciting I was absolutely fascinated by ospreys the story about Skyhawk is a story about two very rural communities one in Scotland and one in northwest Africa who are connected by a migratory bird the osprey and it's really about that connection making connections across countries and how ospreys and indeed all migratory birds they don't see borders that we do and it's about protecting birds on their migratory path it's about protecting people on these journeys and what's been wonderful with the osprey as I think I was mentioning earlier in the podcast that ospreys were once extinct in this country they'd been exterminated by the Victorians over 100 years ago and then in the 1950s one pair returned to Scotland and at first people wanted to keep this a secret and that year those eggs were stolen and the next year when the ospreys came back the RSPB said let's show everyone these ospreys let's bring them here let's protect their nest site and then when everyone heard about the ospreys everyone was fascinated by them they wanted to see them they wanted to protect them and we've gone since 1954 to now from one breeding pair of ospreys in this country to over 400 breeding pairs of ospreys and even in the 10 years of writing Skyhawk, there were never any ospreys near myself in Somerset, but now ospreys have been translocated to Pool Harbour in Dorset near me. So we're seeing them all around the country. Ospreys really are a symbol of conservation success where people come together and move forward. So it's been really wonderful to see Skyhawk still flying high 10 years later and to have this wonderful new cover as well. That's so wonderful because of what you're focusing on in the book and then to actually see it kind of reflected in real life and the fact that you're now seeing the birds near where you live. I mean, how absolutely lovely. I mean, I think the book's lovely. What I love about it is there's a whole bunch of different things that it touches on. So you've got the concept of friendship across the different nations. You've obviously got the animal welfare piece as well. And thinking about life in different parts of the world, as well as all things to do with the Ospreys as well. So I think it's really lovely that it's getting this new addition to bring it to a whole range of new children. Can't wait to get it in front of more readers. And like you say, it was funny when you were talking, if you hadn't mentioned The Lost Words, I would have brought it up as well because I remember being really shocked when that book came out because we got a little bit of mixed messaging as booksellers to begin with. And the message was, these are words that had been taken out of the dictionary which we were a bit confused about because we were, I'm sure they're not. Maybe some of them have been, but then obviously it then transpired that it was more about dropping out of children's vocabulary and the fact that they needed to come back in. And I think the response to that and then the subsequent books kind of in that space have done a wonderful job. So I think children are definitely back on that focus, which is wonderful. So with this book, obviously, it, it must be quite strange talking about this book because obviously it was the first book you wrote, well, the first book that was published and you've obviously done so many other things since. So although I know it's going back in time, how long did it take you to write and research this book? Because there is a lot of detail in it. All my books have lots of research. So I was Skyhawk. It took probably about four or five months to do the research, talking to Osprey experts, reading lots of books, going to the places where 
ospreys not only nest, but sometimes they stop over on their migrations. And they're incredible birds when you watch them fishing. I mean, I remember seeing one fishing in Pool Harbour. It, it wasn't then, it was on its sort of migration flight back to Africa. But it's an amazing moment. You sort of see this bird, which has a sort of, at first you think, was that a large seagull? Because it's got this rather M-shaped shape in the sky. And as it flies closer, you see it's a huge bird with this beautiful brown upper wings and pale underwings. And then they hover and flight over the water. And then you can just, they sometimes take a little stoop dive, first of all, to try to catch, to look a bit closer at the fish. And they, when they plunge into the water, it's an amazing sight. And so that was part of the research. And also the research took me to meet a founder of the Bansang Hospital in the Gambia as well, because that's where part of the story is set. So it's very much a, a wide-ranging research. And it took about three or four months of research, and then three or four months for the writing of the actual first draft of the novel, and then probably another few months for rewriting and really tightening up that story. That's actually not too long. If you you know you hear about people that are taking you know five years to write their first book, so you obviously had like a natural affiliation with it, and the book is still stunning and still relevant today. Obviously, as I mentioned earlier, you've written quite a range of books since then, over 20 different titles. They're all largely animal related, but they're quite different in style. So, for example, this year, in addition to the Barrington Stoke title we've already talked about, you've also published a book called A Street Dog Named Pup and Willow Wild Thing and The Shooting Star. So perhaps we could just talk about those and how your experience of writing those books differs from the book that you are now publishing as your 10th anniversary. Well, A Street Dog Named Pup is probably my first very anthropomorphic book. A lot of my other stories, like Skyhawk, you're looking at the animal as actually animal, and I don't put thought processes onto the animal. Whereas A Street Dog Named Pup, it's very much that the dogs are thinking and talking to each other in a similar way that I would hope that dogs might talk to each other if they could speak. (laughs) But A Street Dog Named Pup was written because, one, because I love dogs, But I also wanted to show some of the stories that dogs have through being a vet, through seeing some of the ways animals are mistreated, and also seeing that really, really strong bond between humans and and animals. So the story about a street dog named Pup is about this one pup called Pup, who is taken from a boy that he loves. He's abandoned in Dead Dog Alley, where he's found by Frenchie and a bunch of street dogs who hide deep beneath the railway archings. And they're hiding from the humans and they're learning to survive on the streets. So they take Pup in and they help him to survive. But all the time, Pup knows that he wants to get back to the boy who loved him. And a street dog named Pup really is an exploration of our relationship with dogs. And also it's a reflection, I hope, upon how we are as humans and how we treat each other as well. I learned quite a lot about dogs when I was reading the book and also looking at the information on your website about it, about some of the dogs that are featured and just really awful things like you were talking about the particular breed of dog, which escapes me now, whose ears are cut just for aesthetic reasons. There's so many things like that that I just had no idea about. So the thing I really like about your books is you do learn as well, even though it's written in a way that's obviously enjoyable in fiction. And I know Michael Mapergo was famously quoted as saying that he will never look at a dog in the same way again after having read your book. So <laughs> I praise indeed. 
And what about Willow Wild Thing and the Shooting Star? This is part of a series of books, isn't it? And again, this is quite a different thing again. Yeah, so Willow Wild Thing takes us back to our very first conversation at the beginning of this podcast about a group of children who live in a city like I did when I grew up in the outskirts of Bath. And they have a magical wild place, which is the grounds of an old house in the middle of this town, which has been left to grow wild. And so this is where they have their magical adventures. And it follows the story of a girl called Willow, who has to move to a new house in a new town. She's left all the friends she knows, and she's feeling a little bit unhappy and a bit lonely uh, because her brother sometimes has to go into hospital. So she feels a little bit um, not neglected by her parents, but her parents are focusing on her little brother. So she finds this group of children who don't quite look like children because she meets them in the wilderness, in this wild place. (laughs) And when they go into the wilderness, they change. They take on slightly animal characteristics. So we have fox and mouse and hare and bear and raven. And they've all got characteristics of the animals that they take their names from. And in the wilderness, they have these magical adventures. And it becomes a stretch of their imagination, really, how when you're a child and imagination and reality blur into one. And so in the first story, we have there's a swamp monster. There's a terrible howling heard in the middle of the forest. And they have to discover where this howling is coming from and also who's been stealing their donuts. I mean, that's one of the big problems <laughs> in the story. <laughs> and then throughout the series, the series have got an individual story. But right at the end of the story, their wilderness is under threat from developers. And the children have to be the agents of change. They have to find a way to show the adults how special this wilderness is because it has wild animals, it has wild plants. It's it's a place for children and for people where you can just have some time for headspace and enjoy the wild things. So it's, it's in a way a gentle story, but at the same time, I hope quite an important one as well. Yeah, I really like that series of books. They're great. It appeals to a lot of different children. Obviously, there's the animal element, but also there's this like adventurous element as well. So they're quite a nice, easy hand sell for us because, like I say, they've got a broad appeal. So does your writing process change depending on what type of book you are writing or is it fairly consistent throughout? My writing process does change. With all my writing, I do start off by doing lots of illustrations and sketches and in a street blog named Pup I've illustrated some of the chapter headings and there's a portrait of all the pups and those are pictures that I did right at the beginning to really understand what my characters looked like what they felt like how they talked how they acted that's vital to my writing process I think as the years have gone by I tend to get my first draft down even faster than before I just try and get that splurge of creativity out so I always write on the computer because I can't read my own writing but I'll just type the words out and they come out in very strange orders you probably couldn't recognize some of the words (laughs) as they came out but I like to get the energy down and then go back to it and then go through it and rewrite and change the words perhaps add paragraphs move paragraphs around later so I think I've got faster on that but I think further I have got down this process, it doesn't become easier, I think. So sort of trying to sort of find that story and shape that story to be the best as it can be gets harder. <laughs> but it's a wonderful process to go through from having this idea in your head to be able to put those thoughts on paper. It feels quite a privilege to be able to do that. 
It's an amazing thing to be doing for a living. What are you working on at the moment? Obviously, these are going out into the ether now, the ones we've talked about. Some have already been published and then you've got your 10th anniversary coming up. But what's in the future for you? Lots of ideas swirling around. I have just finished a story for Barrington Stoke, which is again about rewilding. And this time it's actually about beavers and how beavers are the eco-engineers. They can change landscapes. They're really what sometimes people term keystone species because they can bring so much more wildlife back. And how they do that is they create dams, they create wetlands. So we get more amphibians, more invertebrates, more bird life to these areas which have been re-wetted. But it's also a story about change. And when you're writing a story, it's about trying to find your protagonists and how they have that similar change in their whole life with renewal. So I'm looking forward to that story being published. And I'm working on another story at the moment I can't tell you too much about. But again, it's a highly anthropomorphic story with a little bit of fantasy elements in there. And it's about an animal, which a lot of people don't really like, but I like this animal. And it's about rats. Oh, goodness. (laughs) Yeah, not many people write about rats. Oh, fabulous. We'll keep an eye out for that. Well, Jill, it's been absolutely wonderful chatting to you today i just love your range of books i think they're so fantastic and they're so wonderful to get into the hands of children and we will continue to do so thank you so much for coming and speaking to me today i really hope that your 10th anniversary celebrations of skyhawk go well oh thank you very much and i hope people get out to their local areas and go and have a look at some ospreys for the 10th anniversary as well that'd be amazing all of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the mostly books website this podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.